NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Sharo, and I am joined somewhere out there in this quarantined world by Joe Wolfon. Hey, man, how's it going? Doing all right. We've uh, had some technical difficulties trying to get this episode off the ground for some reason, but uh, we are surviving and thriving. <laughs> well, yeah, thriving might be a stretch, but we are surviving <laughs> for the time being. Amen to that. Um, all right, so today's episode, we are going to pick our all-NBA teams that may never come to fruition. If there is no more NBA basketball this season, obviously the NBA at some point will deal with all-NBA teams. But we're imagining that that can be dealt with right now. Um, we we had done awards picks around the mid-season point, but I don't think we actually ever did all-NBA picks at any point this season. So it'll be a little fresher than awards picks. Um, so you want to just jump right into it and, and tell me who you would have, how do you want to do it? You want to do first team, second team, third team, or you just want to have like six guards, six forwards? Well, I think we should just go team by team. And then if we have disagreements, we can kind of hash them out. I feel like we're probably not going to have too many disagreements, Yeah. but, um, I think, you know, if we go through it team by team, then, um, That'll just make it easier. Because if you go through it, like, guards forward, like, you just kind of lose track, I think, of, like, yeah. which guy you have on which team. Um, All right, so, so let's start with first team, and I feel like we will probably have the same five guys on this team. But um, Are your two guards um, Luka Doncic and James Harden? They are, indeed. Maybe Lillard is, like, the only guy that I could justify putting on this team ahead of one of those guys, but considering like the Mavs and the Rockets are the top two offenses in the league and their offenses are both driven in such large part by those two guys that, you know, despite the kind of defensive limitations I feel like that you get with both of them offensively, they're just so dynamic and so special and do so much for their respective teams. I feel like they had to be the two. These guys have been the two best guards in the league, essentially from start to premature finish to the season. Doncic had a, a couple minor injuries. Harden did go into a shooting stump, but you know, by and large, I don't really think there were any guards in the league that threatened to steal a first team guard spot from these two guys at all. I mean, and, and I don't think I don't think that's a knock on the other guards. I think that's more a testament to just how insanely good Luca and, and Harden were throughout the season. No, I think we'll see as we go through that, like the guard category was really stacked, yeah. um, especially on the offensive side of the ball. And, uh, you know, that's without Steph Curry playing really at all. He played, I think, five yeah. games. So even without Steph in the mix, this was still a pretty stacked group. And, you know, you mentioned the, the shooting slump that Harden went through. He still finishes with the 61.6% true shooting mark. So that's insane, uh, you know, and on the volume that he was doing it at, uh, just, you know, he, he can go through an epic slump the way that he did and still come out with absolutely elite efficiency because he just gets to the free throw line so often and is taking so many of his shots from, you know, either three point range or at the rim that the efficiency is still kind of tilts in his favor. And again, the Rockets are number two in the NBA in offense and, I know there was this kind of perception that Westbrook was carrying the team uh, for the last month or more. And Westbrook was great, don't get me wrong. But I still think it's Harden that drives that offensive system like so, so much more than Westbrook did. And I think Westbrook, you know, his incredible hot streak and the way that he played in the last few weeks of the season 
were so much a product of the attention that defenses had to pay to Harden. Uh, and ultimately, like, you know, if you look at the on-off numbers on that team, like the, Harden is driving that team success a lot more than Westbrook was. You want to fill out the rest of this team and who, who are your two forwards? I mean, Giannis and LeBron. I don't even think we really need to spend any time talking about them, especially because <laughs> like, we're going to do awards pick um, maybe for our next episode or sometime in the near future where I feel like we'll talk about those guys a lot. And we've certainly talked about them a ton over the course of the season. So I don't know how much needs to be said. You can listen to like, the last six episodes where I think in each of them we got into Giannis and LeBron talk for real. Um, I mean, they were the two most important players in the NBA this season, I think. Yeah. Agreed. Um, I think it'd be asinine to leave either one of them off the first team. I had, uh, I had Jokic as my first team center. As did I. Um, I think, um, like, you know, unless you were including Anthony Davis in the center category, which, which I, I don't think would have been right, given that he played, I think, over 80% of his minutes at the four. Yep. I don't think there was anyone really who came close to, to what Jokic did, um, both just because of his durability. I mean, he played in every single game. And the Nuggets continued to thrive, you know, 43 and 22, third in the Western Conference despite not really getting a breakout performance from anybody else on the roster, like nobody really stepped up to be a legitimate second banana. Uh, You know, Will Barton maybe was like the closest thing that they had to that. Like Jamal Murray was basically the same guy offensively, at least that he was last year. Yeah. Runs very hot and cold. Yeah. Um, And it's really Jokic that's, that's making that team go. And um, I think, his defense was actually fine. Like the Nuggets were 12th in the league in defensive efficiency. And I know in some senses, maybe that's more in spite of Jokic than because of him. But I actually think like given his sort of physical limitations, like he plays his role pretty damn well. And, you know, averaging 20 points, 10 rebounds, seven assists, uh, one of the best post players in the league, obviously, you know, maybe the single best passer in the league. Um, or, you know, best passer, non-LeBron division in the league. Um, I think on balance, he was easily the best center this year. And again, we, it's something we spoke about earlier in the season, but I think the the kind of fascinating thing with Jokic's year this season is that in a way, it's like he took a month off to start the year, if you remember. Uh, he looked out of shape. He looked kind of disengaged and disinterested to start the season, and it was pretty worrisome. I'd say he looked actively Nugget. miserable. <laughs> Right, yeah, it just it, it, he looked like a guy unhappy with the situation, and I, if I was a Nuggets fan, I would have been pretty concerned by what I saw in that first month or so of the season, and then from about late November, early December, um, maybe even a, a little before that, but from then on, he was just lights out, and and even actually during that stretch when he did look miserable and wasn't playing at his best, he did hit uh, multiple game winners. I think that it was just really interesting that he. He started off looking so disengaged. The Nuggets survived that stretch with a good record. He survived that stretch with still decent numbers, just not what we were used to. And then once he kind of found his rhythm and maybe got in better shape and, and I don't know, got out of his own head, he, he really took off in from about December until, you know, when the season was suspended on March 11th. And to your point about the, like him hitting game winners, like if you just look at his clutch time stats, you know, like games within five points in the last five minutes, those numbers are like pretty good, but if you look at like shots in the last minute to either tie or take the lead, I'm pretty sure he's 
the best player in the game. Like he has been the best clutch shot maker in the league this year. Yeah, and you know, I, I look, I get that the argument that you know, in some ways, that's kind of luck related. And even if you look at a couple of his game winners this year, like I think it was, you remember the one against Philly where he was falling off balance through a, but I, but he's I do so get good. That. He's so good at hitting those like fall away one footed jumpers too. That's what I was about to say though. Is like, okay, yes, it, it does a little bit of luck go into that. Sure. But at some point, if the same guy is hitting the same shots, no matter how awkward or lucky they may look like at some point, you do have to accept that maybe he is just better at those shots than his peers. You know what I mean? Like at some point, the numbers don't lie. And whether it's, you know, the fact that at his size, his ability to get that shot off is an advantage or whatever the case may be, at some point you do have to accept that while a little bit of luck may go into it, Nikola Jokic is better at those shots than most of the rest of the NBA. And I think his ability as a post scorer is so important because, you know, Embiid's, for instance, was one of the few players who was actually a more efficient post scorer than Jokic this year. But Embiid obviously doesn't have nearly the same passing chops. And it becomes so valuable for Jokic because you really have to be wary of double teaming him in a way that you don't necessarily have to be wary of double teaming Embiid. Because if you double team Jokic, like he's going to find the open man. You're going to give up an open three or, you know, a dunk on on a backdoor cut. It's really dangerous to double team him and it's really dangerous to play him in single coverage because he can absolutely feast in the post. And I think like a lot of those shots that he was hitting late in games are shots that he was hitting out of the post, whether they were like baby hooks or turnaround jumpers. He has like unbelievable touch. He is the most efficient floater shooter in the NBA, which is something I discovered while doing research for that floater piece that I wrote a couple months back. Um, which, by the way, is a great piece. People should check that out. Yeah, appreciate Google that. Joe Wolf on floaters to score. You'll find it. <laughs> yeah, I just think like he can score in a variety of ways, and I think the damage that he can do as a passer um, just makes uh, makes that post up ability that much more valuable and that much more important. And I think you know we were talking about Harden and Doncic and how they like you know everything that their teams do on offense revolves around them. That's true of Jokic too. And it obviously manifests in a completely different way uh, because he is not sort of, you know, pounding the ball at the top of the key for 15 seconds every possession. But everything they do offensively flows through his playmaking ability, you know, whether it's from the low post, the high post, uh, the elbow. I, I just think he's been brilliant. The one, I guess, I don't even know if you'd call it a knock. It's just kind of it is who he is. But his three-point shooting, he had that year a couple of years ago where he shot 39.6% from yeah. deep. Yeah, that's looking like the outlier. Exactly, yeah. You know, his first couple of years were at 33 and 32, and then he has that year, and you're like, whoa, this guy's flirting with 40% from deep. That is pretty damn terrifying for opponents. And then his two years since then, 30.7, 31.4. So it is looking like that is a part of his game that maybe just isn't going to come. I know it's still early, and he is still only 24, but five years in his his three-point percentage is under 34 and like you said that one year where he randomly hit 39 is definitely looking like the outlier right now yeah I mean we'll we'll see uh that's definitely the case for now um because obviously you know apart from that season I don't think he had a, a year where he even shot like 34 percent right everything no. else was no. in like you know 33 percent or lower so I, I think you know maybe ultimately he'll land somewhere in the middle like I just think he can hit such high degree of difficulty shots and he hits most of them just like completely flat footed also um, that I think, you know, that ability is in there somewhere, but I, I don't even know if I would necessarily 
want him to be focusing on that aspect of the game, just given how much damage he can do on the interior yeah. and even in, you know, the kind of in-between spaces. So um, it would obviously be a fantastic luxury, but I don't necessarily think that's like a crucial thing that he had, that he has to add. Right. Even if he does add it, I don't think it needs to be a major component of his game to, for him to be effective, clearly. Right. Especially if he's surrounded by other shooters. Yeah. All right. That, that's our first team. It's James Harden, Luka Doncic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, and Nikola Jokic. Second team, who are your guards? I got Lillard and Chris Paul. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Uh, man, we got to, like... I'll, I'll, don't worry, I'll, I'll throw a wild card in at some point just for the sake of it. <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we need some divergence of opinion here to keep things a little bit more interesting. Um, but, okay, why don't, why don't you start this time? Look, I think Chris Paul has probably been the best and most consistent non-hearted Doncic guard in the league. Um, from a two-way perspective, I know Lillard's been a little more explosive offensively, but I, I think Chris Paul's been probably the better overall basketball player this season, and that's kind of absurd to consider when you think about I don't want to say how bad he was last year but how washed he he was starting to look last year right like he had lost the ability to penetrate defenses yet he had even lost a little bit of the efficiency in the mid-range um, where he usually dominates teams and picks them apart he just didn't seem to have that point god um, air about him last year and goes to Oklahoma City um, on a team where a lot of people thought, you know, rightfully so, we're going to be rebuilding and blowing it up and, and CP would be moved at some point off of a bad Thunder team. And instead was, you know, as good as Shy was and, and as great as their three-guard lineup was with Schroeder and, you know, as great as Paisan Gallinari still is as an offensive player, I don't think anyone would argue the fact that Chris Paul was undoubtedly the best player on that team. And he was the best player on a team that was on pace to win 50 plus games, I believe, in a tough Western Conference again. So I, I just think, like, I think at some point it, it became very simple that he was back to being an all NBA guard and not even like an in the conversation all NBA guard, a clear cut all NBA guard again on both ends of the court. Yeah, like the counting stats won't blow you away, but I think that if you watch the Thunder on even a semi regular basis this year, you knew how valuable he was at both ends of the floor. And that three point guard lineup that you mentioned does not remotely work if not for his defense and his ability to you know guard any one of those three positions. You look at the on-off, like 6.8 net rating with him on the court, negative 5.4 with him off. That's a 12.2 differential. And again, you know, we were talking about the, the clutch stuff with Jokic. Uh, Paul might have been the best high-volume clutch player in the league this year. The Thunder went 29-13 and 13 in games that included clutch time. And in those clutch time minutes, Paul was uh, at 68% true shooting, a plus 28 net rating, averaging 32.7 points per 36 minutes. He was just magnificent. And I think, you know, it, it kind of became normal as the season went along. But if you just think about what we expected the Thunder to be at the start of the year and what they actually were, I mean, they were 40 and 24. That is a better record than they had at the same time last year. Like, think about that. We we fully expected them to miss the playoffs and possibly just, like, start selling off pieces to go into the tank completely. And instead, they wound up with the exact same record as the Rockets had when the season was canceled. Um, and I think, honestly, like, maybe the most impressive or most unexpected thing about all of this is that he missed one game. Like, Chris Paul, Mr. Made of Glass, 
you know, in his age 35 season, uh, you know, the biggest concern with him was just like his deteriorating health potentially. And not only did he look to have some of the juice back, you know, as far as beating guys off of the bounce and toying with big men and, you know, getting to that mid range jumper, but he missed one game. And I just think that was uh, a pretty incredible and underplayed storyline. The the Thunder managed to trade Paul George and Russell Westbrook in span of one week and somehow get better in the short term, not just in the long and, and the thing is, that's like not even um, hyperbole. They literally got better. They had a better record, not just at this point in time in the season, but just overall winning percentage. If you look at what they finished with it last season and what they were on pace for this season, they were a better team this season, full stop. Yeah. Now you can argue about what their ceiling might have been with the amount of star talent they had, but you know, newsflash, they lost in the first round last year. So it, it's pretty remarkable. And the reason they were able to do that, you know, trade those guys and be better in the short term, again, no disrespect to the other guys on their roster, but it mainly because of the impact Chris Paul had on a basketball court this season. Yeah, what an offseason that proved to be for them. I mean, to, to make your team better while picking up a blue chip prospect who looks like, you know, he could be a foundational player for years to come and, and five yeah, first okay. round picks and two pick swaps. Yeah. That is a coup on, on a level that I don't know if we've ever seen. No, it's true. On a side note there, I had uh, randomly tweeted this, I think like a couple of weeks ago, it was like a quarantine note of the day. But if you, if you go back and look at it like 20 years from now, if you go back and look at the total haul, that Paul George commanded in two trades, two years apart. <laughs> Vic and Shai Gilgis, Vic, yeah, Vic, and Vic Oladipo, Demonte Sabonis, so two All Stars. Shai Gilgis Alexander, which probably going to be an All Star. Danilo Gallinari, elite offensive player, and then like thirty eight draft picks. <laughs> yeah, he might be the best trade chip of all time. Yeah, that that's what I was arguing on Twitter, and it's like maybe like in terms of pure value, no, obviously not. But in terms of guys who were traded and then looking at the value that was recouped, mm-hmm. I think you can make the argument Paul George is the best trade ship ever. I think also this is something we should consider when we gripe about the amount of players that the amount of power that players have seemingly wrested away from like front offices, and you know when people sort of gripe about player empowerment or superstar empowerment and and how like the players are running the league I think it's important to look at the situations where like a player asking out of a team or essentially informing them as Paul George did the Pacers that he wasn't going to resign there at the end of the coming season how much that can actually help the team like rather than lose that player for nothing you manage to recoup incredible value and I think there is a sort of mutually beneficial element to that dynamic uh, and a symbiosis there where like, yeah, obviously Paul George gets to go where he wants to go, but both the Pacers and the Thunder wind up in much better situations than they would have been in otherwise. There's a path where it works out for both teams. Yeah. But to take this back to Paul, I think, and just to maybe like wrap up uh, this segment on him, um, obviously, you know, we talk about just like his production, the numbers, But I think there's also some intangible stuff where we didn't really know how this was going to go. You know, he gets traded to a not preferred destination. And I think he probably expected to be uh, rerouted somewhere else, whether before the season or, you know, during the season. And not only did he make the most of the situation on an individual level, but like he really stepped up and steered the ship. 
and I think played a big part in in Shea having the season that he had and in just kind of keeping that Thunder team steady throughout the season. Um, and I think, you know, that team was one of, if not the best story in the league. So the other guy we both agreed on as the All-NBA second team guard was Dame Lillard. Kind of just don't have much left to say about Dame and, and not because I'm bored of his excellence or anything, but just because I don't know what there's to say about him that we haven't already said so maybe I'll let you take the floor here but yeah I just think I just think he's one of the most ridiculous offensive talents I've ever seen and um, you know many 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 people have spoken about it and reported about it but he's also one of the great culture guys in the league in Mm -hmm. terms of the kind of guy you want to build your franchise around yeah I'll just say and I you know I said before I think he was maybe the only guy I would consider putting on that first team, uh, potentially usurping one of Harden or Doncic. I just don't want this Lillard season to get lost to history, which I feel like might happen. I feel like this was one of the great invisible seasons of all time. Like, I think it's already been lost to history. Yeah, and, and that's a shame because he averaged 29-8 and eight on 62% true shooting, shoots 39.4% from three on 10 attempts per game, and a whole bunch of those we know were high degree of difficulty threes off the dribble, you know, from way beyond the arc. I just like he's gotten to a point where as a pick and roll operator, he can warp an opposing defense like nobody this side of Steph Curry. Um, if you look at his numbers as like a pick and roll ball handler, 1.14 points per possession, which is ridiculous. Tops in the league. And not only, you know, is that that number on its own incredible, but like as a pick and roll ball handler, like that made up 52% of his individual possessions. More than half of his possessions were being used or finished as a ball handler in the pick and roll. And he's converting those into points at a ridiculous rate, the the best rate in the league. Um, And just as a point of comparison, uh, Steph Curry's 2015-16 season, which many will cite as like the greatest offensive season of all time. Uh, he was at 1.11 points per possession as a pick and roll ball handler, and he did that on half the volume. I, I mean, yeah, we we talk about Lillard with more a lot. threats around him too. Yeah, absolutely, and, and yeah, so we talk about Lillard a lot, but I just think you know throwing some numbers like that out there to to contextualize just how incredible he was offensively this season might help uh, some people who didn't watch the Blazers all that much or didn't think that they mattered because they weren't you know really in the playoff hunt and were way below 500. Uh, I don't think you can put that on Dane. And and like, look, his defense, I do think slipped a bit and it wasn't the highest of bars to begin with for him. But I don't know that you can blame the Blazers 27th ranked defense on him, uh, you know, given the lack of defensive talent they had around him. And usually I just think, you know, the, the bar for point guard defense is pretty low as it is. But as an offensive player, I think he was basically up there with everyone on that first team. Yeah, it's it's hard to be better in the NBA on one end of the court uh, than Dame Lillard was on offense this season. And I think, you know, it's something I've said before too, is like, look, while it's not ideal that the best player on a team is, you know, maybe somewhat of a one-way player, if that player is transcendent enough on that one end, it can work. And I don't think anyone can argue that Dame isn't transcendent on the offensive end. No, there's definitely no argument there. Who is your All-NBA second team center? I had Embiid. And, and, you know, this was, I guess, the first one that I came to where I actually had to, I don't know if wring my hands was too strong, but I actually had, you know, some measure of uh, of confliction about it. 
because he didn't miss 21 games. I think there were some games where he didn't look particularly engaged and where maybe he was part of uh, the problem um, with that Sixers offense being as discombobulated as it was. But I also just think like at his best, he is such a force. And I think if he, if he had been a bit healthier and hadn't missed as much time, it would have been a no brainer. Um, Cause I think even with the time he missed that he was the second best center in the league on balance. I think his value is just so evident, you know, both in the numbers and in the eyeball test, when you watch the Sixers with and without him, the game is played. I don't, I don't want to say that they don't matter because obviously they do. And, and the fact that he is that valuable means, you know, if he can stay on the floor more, the Sixers will be better and they were a disappointing team. But I do think there, you know, like there's some sort of threshold where if you're that valuable and just that dominant when you're on the court, you can survive missing a chunk of the season and still be a no-brainer All-NBA player, especially at center position. And, and I think Embiid is that. He was on pace to miss more than a quarter of the season. But, you know, at some point it comes down to the simple argument of, can you name me three centers who are undoubtedly more impactful than Joel Embiid this season? And I think the answer is no. Yeah. I think it's a pretty clear no. And, like, defensively, the Sixers allowed – uh, eight fewer points per hundred with him on the floor. Um, I think outside of the Giannis Brook Lopez combo, which is kind of a team effort, um, he was like the biggest deterrent of opponent shots at the rim. Uh, and he, like I was saying when I was talking about Jokic, like there was basically one guy who was more efficient as a post scorer, and that was Embiid. And he was he was doing he, he was both the most efficient and the highest volume post player in the league. And I think that's important to note when people talk about how he shouldn't be spotting up from three and just needs to be in the post more often. Like he was by far the highest volume post player in the league. And obviously, you know, it would maybe be more ideal if he was playing in a system or with teammates that allowed him to play on the inside more uh, when there was enough shooting around him that he didn't have to be the guy who was spacing out. But given the context of that team and how he was asked to play I don't know how much more he could have done uh, and obviously the Sixers were a bit of a mess this year but like think about where they would have been without him yeah and it's scary to think about where they would have been without him because they were not even on pace to be a 50 win team when the season was suspended I guess if there's a knock on him it's that I feel like the same kind of um, struggles with consistency I want to say we had a first-hand account of his zero-point performance against Marcus on the Raptors that night in Toronto. I feel like nights like that, and I don't mean scoreless nights, I just mean nights where like it's he seems off or bouts with inconsistency still seem like an impediment for him. And I feel like in that way, there hasn't been like enough of a development as a franchise player or leader in his four years in the league. And I don't know if that's just maybe like us picking on him too much and looking too deep into it. And maybe we just have to accept that look other than maybe like two or three players in the league, every great star goes through stretches of inconsistency every year. Like, what do you think? Do you, do you think there is something there with Embiid where the inconsistency is a problem? Do you think it maybe is just related to the fact he's always in and out of the lineup? Or do you think it's something that is no different than any other star? And for whatever reason, it just seems to be talked about more with Embiid. To be honest, I really just think improving his playmaking would go such a long way. Yeah. And like you talk about what the Raptors did to him. I mean, that game, like they were swarming him all night, like double teaming on him on the catch, no matter where he was catching the ball. 
Uh, Gasol obviously, you know, individually did a great job, but that was totally a team effort. And like Embiid's a fine passer, uh, and like I think the vision has actually come a long way. But there are certainly times when he's a little bit slow to react. He's very turnover prone, and if he could sharpen those playmaking skills to the point that like it became a really dangerous proposition to double team him or shade a lot of help his way, um, the way that it is with Jokic, then I think you would start to see that consistency come back up just because there wouldn't be a whole lot that teams could do to him without opening up a lot of other dangerous possibilities for that Sixers offense. Yeah, I think especially based on the way the Sixers are currently constructed, Joel Embiid um, becoming more of a playmaker and a quicker decision maker with the ball in his hands would go a long way to unlocking some of their offensive issues. Just to throw it out there, so four years now uh, of Embiid in the NBA. I mean, six technically, but four that he's actually played. Like The guy's averaging a career, essentially 24 points, 12 rebounds, three assists, and nearly two blocks. Just insane numbers. And then the catch being that in those four seasons, he's averaged about 50 games per year. Right. So just remains uh, such an enigma in that way and really would be awesome to see this guy stay healthy. But at some point, again, you just kind of have to accept that it is what it is when the sample size becomes this large and and accept that, look, Joel Embiid is going to be an all-NBA talent for the prime of his career, but he's probably also never going to be the guy that you can count on for even like 70 games in a season. Yeah, which is really, really unfortunate because I think yeah. his peak is so unbelievably high. And just with a couple of tweaks to his game, uh, and like you said, better health, you know, he could absolutely be a top five player in the league. Um, yeah. and, I, and I just hope that we get a chance to see that for some stretch of time, you know, even if it's like a two or three year stretch where he, he averages like 70 games a season, I think that would be unbelievable. Yeah, he, he might be, I mean, I guess Giannis in a way is like a post player, but in, in terms of pure big men, Embiid might be the only big man in recent memory, like true, a kind of old school post post-up big man who could be the best player on a championship team in terms of recent memory. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, so I just realized that we I had actually accidentally skipped over the forwards for the uh, All-NBA second team. So who are your two? I have a feeling we're about to agree on it again. I would I think don't... so, yeah. AD and Kawhi. Yeah. So, so we're 10 for 10 so far? Yeah. <laughs> Although I feel like the third team is where we can maybe have some arguments. Like I, if, if either of us had gone with anyone else on these first two teams, like I, I feel like it would be somewhat fraudulent. No, there's no other option. Um, yeah. Like, again, I think Embiid maybe you could quibble with uh, just because of the time missed. But as far as uh, the guards and forwards on the second team, I feel like they're pretty set in stone. Um, yeah. With AD, like I said, I think if, if, you, if he was in the center category, there would be a pretty good case for putting him on the first team. Uh, but he's just been magnificent this season. And I think for that Lakers team to have been third in the league in defensive efficiency and, you know, him quite obviously having been the biggest reason for that, you know, that alone would be enough to, to put him in this mix. But the fact that he was doing that while also being an elite offensive performer, even though like offensively, I don't think he was best served at the four because they couldn't really put him in pick and roll as much. He spent a lot of time spotting up around like LeBron, JaVale McGee or LeBron Dwight Howard pick and rolls and, um, you know, playing in the post a lot more than acting as kind of a rim runner. Uh, Like defensively, they were an absolute beast when they played two bigs, uh, especially with him and Dwight together. And they were a monster rebounding team. And he was still able to make it work offensively because, He's added kind of just enough stretch to his game 
where he shot 33.5% from three on three and a half attempts per game. Uh, he can score in the post really effectively, and he can take most power forwards off the dribble. So um, just been an incredible season for him. Uh, and obviously, you know, you saw what his arrival, even even when the Lakers had to ship out four players to acquire him, uh, you saw how his arrival completely transformed that team. Or what you saw with AD this season, even though maybe the numbers were slightly down from his peak years in New Orleans when he didn't have as much help, is... Were the numbers down, though? Well, not from last year, because last year we had the down year, but the, the two years prior to last season, he averaged 28-plus per game in back-to-back season. This year is down to, like, 26-7. His rebounds, this was his first time not having double-digit rebounds since his rookie season. But again, I think that's a product of him playing next to a traditional center almost all the time. Right, yeah, and playing less of his minutes at center. And also, again, just uh, it's hard to average 28 a game playing with LeBron, but he still almost averaged 27 a game. So the numbers being down, that's what I was going to say, like there aren't a knock on him whatsoever. And I think what we saw from AD this year was, you know, pretty close to the fully realized version of AD that so many people wondered what it would look like on a good team. And we saw it. Um, I, I know you would have uh, Giannis as your defensive player of the year. And I think that's a fair argument. I think it's also a fair argument that AD could have won it and and certainly was going to be in the mix to win it. You mentioned how good they were as a team defensively and how much he played a part in that. You know, I think we saw in that last um, Clippers game, his his kind of diverse value in the league where you, you mentioned it. He can, if you want to go small against a team with AD on it, I think this year, a little more than ever, we saw him punish that when when he was given the opportunity we know he can shoot and stretch the floor if he has to down even a mid-range shot but he can also destroy you in the post defensively you know he can guard uh, a versatile bigs he can guard traditional bigs like he he kind of made the lakers matchup proof in a way on a roster that maybe otherwise didn't seem matchup proof and uh and i just think yeah his value to a team that was stunningly on pace for 60 plus wins and I think when the season was suspended I'd climbed within a couple of games of the Bucks or three games of the Bucks and I know LeBron obviously is most valuable there and the on-off numbers bear that out but I just think AD's two-way value to a team that was on pace for 60 plus wins was everything that we've kind of always wanted to see from AD in this set. Yeah I think that point about him making them matchup proof is really important because they could uh, and, and you know the word I'll use is downsizing just because they like typically we're playing so big, you know, with AD at the four and and a seven footer at the five, but like if they put him at the five, it's like, he is just going to be an absolute nightmare for pretty much any center in the league to deal with. But you put him at the four and he can brutalize most power forwards. Um, And defensively, like he has no problem going out and guarding on the perimeter. Um, and, you know, if he was playing the five, he's just as capable as a backline help guy and a rim protector. So, you know, he, he gave them that option of playing any way they wanted to and still being able to dictate the terms of any matchup. And um, I think that's a huge part of the success that they had for sure. Yeah, anytime you're talking about uh, a big man who can average about 27 points, who also might be the defensive player of the year, pretty no-brainer all-NBA talent. Yeah, I would say... By far the best, second best player on a team in the league this <laughs> yeah. year. I mean, like outside of, I guess, Steph Curry, like how many second best players on a team have we even seen in recent history? Better than AD this year? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about the best of the best. Like, yeah, Steph with KD, um, Wade with LeBron. Like, yeah. that's, that's, the, uh, that's the company he's keeping. Mm-hmm. 
And then Kawhi. Kawhi, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. Pretty obvious. He, he's one of the three best players in the league with KD sideline. And the only reason, you know, he wouldn't finish top three in MVP or really have a shot at first team All-NBA is because he just didn't play enough, which we expected anyway. But when he played, he was every bit as good as we've ever seen him be in the regular season. Well, it's also the fact the f- that the, you know, the other two guys who we put in that mix as top three players in the league are also both forwards. Right. Yeah. And happen to play more and be, I think, a tad better than he was this season. But the you, know how you, you know how you fix that problem, Joe? <laughs> Tell me, Cash. You do what the NBA is already doing for all-star selections, which is you go two guards and three front court, and you end up with a better representation of the modern NBA and your all-NBA teams. Because Kawhi Leonard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and LeBron James could all be on the all-NBA first team if it was selected right in the year 2020. Yeah. I mean, I would I I have agreed with you on this in the past, and I think I would be happy with them even going a step further and just saying we're going to pick the 15 best guys. Yeah. Um, so I agree with that. And I don't even know, like, let's say it was the, the top 15 guys. So you were breaking it down. You know, the first team is just the five best guys. Is Jokic the guy that you would replace with Kawhi or would you replace one of Harden or Doncic? Uh, I'd, I'd probably replace Jokic. Interesting. I, I actually don't know that I would. I Yeah, might... I don't think it's a no brainer, but I think I would end up leading that way. Yeah. Just the fact that Jokic played in every game. Um, yeah and and like you said you know after having a kind of tough first month of the season like from that point on he was he was so good uh and and really carried that Nuggets team so I don't know I don't know if he's the guy I would replace but like Kawhi I don't know what what more can you say like he he essentially had one I don't I don't even know if I would call it a shortcoming in his game but one area of his game where he wasn't elite and I don't know, maybe you wouldn't call him an elite playmaker this year, but like he turned that one shortcoming into a strength. And like the Clippers came into this year, they were lacking a traditional playmaking point guard. And Kawhi had to work on the ball a ton and become a really heavy usage pick and roll playmaker. And I think he took to that role very nicely and displayed some really impressive passing chops, averaging five assists per game. Uh, I thought his defense was back to being absolutely elite after a bit of a down year on that end last season. And all of that while continuing to pile up points efficiently. Um, he was sixth in the league in scoring on a permanent basis. He was an elite rebounder for his position. And the Clippers had a plus 11.4 net rating with him on the floor while barely breaking even with him on the bench. Yeah, he's the most effortless looking superstar in the league. And it's not because he's actually exuding minimal effort it's just because the game does seem to come that easy to him yeah like the thing you hear people say with Kawhi so often is that he's never rushed like he just takes his time he knows he's going to be able to get to his spot he knows he's stronger than pretty much anybody who's guarding him he's just so confident especially in that mid-range game that he's just going to be able to get a clean look off um get to the basket uh like it is it does really look effortless to him sometimes because he he just has this mastery of the game where he's just in his comfort zone all the time. I don't want to be a downer here, but it really, really, really is a shame if the season does not pick up at some point and we don't get the Kawhi LeBron series that we so desperately want because, you know, I know everyone remembers those Spurs heat series when LeBron was a little more at the peak of his powers and Kawhi was still the young pup and 
and you know LeBron's probably not what he once was fully right now, and Kawhi's at the peak of his powers. But I just still think it would have been. I think it was shaping up to be as phenomenal and as must watch a individual playoff matchup, let alone team playoff matchup in recent memory. And it's really, really a bummer that we might not get to see that. Yeah, I think at this point you just have to hope that next season can go off without a hitch, yeah. and that uh, you know LeBron still is able to play at the level he was playing at this year and Kawhi is able to stay healthy and that we get another opportunity to see that series uh, in a year's yeah. time. Cause I really, I, I don't think it's happening this year. Yeah. You know, we've said that a lot, but we're pessimistic about this, but yeah. I think it bears repeating. I think this season is done. What's up pound the rock listeners. Just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to pound the rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. All right, we've got one all-NBA team left to fill out. I'm thinking this is where the disagreements will start, I hope. Or maybe we just delete this episode. (laughs) Um, Give me your two all-NBA third-team guards. All right, so I'm going to do a kind of prelude where I explain that while Jimmy Butler was listed as a forward on the all-star ballots, I consider him a guard. And you can't so, just make up your own rules here. I'm not making up my own rules. I think we don't know like where uh, the league is ultimately going to sort these players. Like We won't know that until they actually open up voting for these teams. And I, I think that ultimately they might allow Butler to be in the guard category. Sometimes they allow players to, to be both. Yeah, that's um, fair. So I, I do think... I do think that he primarily played as a guard this season, and so he was one of my 13 guards. I know that basketball references play-by-play data when it comes to the positional breakdowns is is not the most accurate, but what percentage of his minutes do you think basketball reference has Jimmy Butler um, at either guard position this season? I would think like, you know, above 80%. Uh, you'd be about 80% too high because the number is zero. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but the, okay. So the thing is like that, the, the basketball reference tool literally just goes by size, right? No, I, I, I know. I'm just saying, I, I said it was not, uh, it was not accurate, but I do think it's well, pretty funny that they have it at zero. <laughs> They've got him as 56% of his minutes at small forward, 44% at power forward. All right, so maybe he won't end up in the guard category. Well, okay, first of all, did you have Butler on your third team at, at any position? I did. Okay. I just think, and it's not just about, like, you know, the size breakdown or who he's guarding, though, like, I do think that stuff matters when we talk about what positions guys actually play. There's a lot of gray area there. Um, but offensively, like he functioned as a point guard most of the time. Like he was a lead ball handler, averaging six assists per game, um, running point, you know, bringing the ball up. And uh, he functioned to me like as a guard, no question about it. Uh, and he did that uh, incredibly effectively. 
I don't know what happened to his three-point shot, but every other aspect of his game was on point. Um, he was just bulldozing to the rim and getting to the free throw line at such a high rate that he still managed to put up over 58% true shooting uh, despite basically abandoning threes altogether in the second half of the season, which is a really tough thing for a lead ball handler to do. See, it's weird now because you have him as a guard. But okay, I'm going I'm to skip a bit ahead here. I think there are there would be seven guards, that means, left, in my opinion, that would have a shot at your final all-NBA guard position. Can I read those seven names? Yes. Kyle Lowry, Kemba Walker, Donovan Mitchell, Russell Westbrook, Ben Simmons, Devin Booker, Bradley Beal. You didn't say Trey Young? I did not say Trey Young. Are you about to tell me Trey Young is your second? No, no, he's not. But uh, uh, like I had, I, a list, I didn't. I had a list of the, the toughest omissions, and Trey Young was was definitely one of them. Yeah, that's fair. But um, I think you can probably guess who I picked. Kyle Lowry. Absolutely. Yeah, I've got him on my thirteen. Okay, so do you want do you want to finish talking about Butler, or you want to just jump to Lowry? <laughs> So we can we can finish talking about Butler. We can finish talking about Butler. Um, okay. Well, I mean, you said you had him there as a forward, so you can give an explainer on that, and and we can maybe pool our resources here. Yeah. Well, I, look, a lot of the stuff is similar to what you said. I do think um, he ran the offense a lot of times. I think he was the most important player to the functioning of their offense, and I I don't think that necessarily automatically makes him a guard. But we can forget that squabble for now. But I think he was the most off, important offensive player. I think he was the playmaker that they so desperately craved um, and an elite playmaker, not just a playmaker in the sense that he has the ball in his hands and is racking up assists. And then I still think that while Bam Adebayo was probably their most, well, not probably, he was their most versatile player and there was large chunks of the season where he was their best player. I still think that when push came to shove and it was like a tight game um, and you were going down the wire, Jimmy Butler was guarding the opposing team's best player. Jimmy Butler had the ball in his hands. Jimmy Butler was often taking that last shot or at least um, the bulk of the offense down the stretch. And I think a lot of times with like all NBA and all-star selections, you can get really into the weeds of like, okay, but was this guy really better than this other guy this season only? And obviously that should be the argument because it's per season. But I do think there comes a point where like when it's close enough and when the debate is valid enough, you just do have to sit back and think of it as like, all right, who, if I'm playing a game right now and I need a win, who out of these guys am I taking? And I think to get to All-NBA third team, and whether it's guard, whether it's forward, pick any two guys above Jimmy Butler, given who's left on the board, is is a little asinine. Yeah, that's sort of where I ended up too. And I think, you know, even just just going through the guys that, that you mentioned that were sort of tough omissions at the guard spot, like Butler's defense to me was a differentiator uh, yeah. between, you know, him and so many of those guys. And I, I actually think that... Uh, he maybe had slipped a bit from his peak defensively, but I thought he was still great at that end of the floor, especially in terms of forcing turnovers. Um, though maybe you could say he actually was gambling a little bit too much, uh, but but he forced a ton of turnovers, and and I think that helped Miami's transition offense a lot. Um, but even just on a on a sort of more ineffable level, he just kind of upped the ante for that Heat team and legitimized them in a way that. Uh, I don't think, you know, even if if Bam has the breakout that he has and, uh, you know, the Heat in the offseason sign, you know, a player who's providing like 75% of what Jimmy Butler is providing. Like, it's just, I, I just think that's a completely different team than the one that overachieved and went 41 and 24 and had one of the best records in the league against above 500 teams um, and somehow put up a seventh ranked offense despite 
uh, I, you know, I came into the season thinking they were really going to struggle offensively. And obviously, you know, there are other reasons that they succeeded. Duncan Robinson maybe being foremost among them. But I do think overall, Butler was kind of the heartbeat of that team. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Okay, so then so we agree on Kyle Lowry as an All-NBA third-team guard, which on its own is pretty remarkable. This is a guy that coming off that finals run had the, I believe, off-season wrist surgery, thumb surgery. What was it? Yeah, thumb. Dealt with injuries again throughout the season. His age 33 year, his 14th season, should be at the end of the road, and instead averages 19.7 points, 7.7 assists, 4.8 rebounds, 1.3 steals, is by far one of the best two-way guards in the league. Honestly, was playing for a guy that was already a great defensive guard at his best. I think you can make the argument he was playing the best defense of his career, regular season-wise anyway. And he was the head of the snake for a Raptors team that was on pace for about 58 or 59 wins in Kawhi Leonard's wake. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to Pascal Siakam at some point, whether he made our All-NBA teams or is a honorable mention. But I still think anyone who watches the Raptors even semi-closely knows that in terms of on-court value, Kyle Lowry remained their best and most important all-around player. And when you're the best all-around player on a 58-59 win team and you're averaging about 20 points and 8 assists, how can you not have him on an All-NBA team? I agree with all of that. And I, I totally agree that he was their best and most important player. And he was the engine that made that team go. Uh, even with Siakam making another leap and very admirably taking on the role of primary scoring option and doing a damn good job of it, the offense still ran best through Lowry. And I think like people talk a lot about Lowry's toughness or his grit, his heart his intelligence, but I don't think he gets enough credit for making everyone around him better. Yeah. And if you look up and down the Raptors roster at all the guys who had career years this year, uh, or just all the guys who have flourished in that system uh, now or in the past, like from Siakam to Serge Ibaka, Fred Van Vliet, Norm Powell, OG Ananobi, Chris Boucher, I think Lowry has so much to do with that success. Like he just sets the table for everybody so beautifully He's unselfish, and he always manages to put guys in positions to succeed. I, I think he's such an underrated and gifted playmaker. Uh, he's one of the best pocket passers in the league. He's one of the best hit-ahead passers in the league. Um, and, uh, you know, everything that the Raptors do uh, and all the success that his teammates have accrued, I, I think owes a whole lot to him. Um, and I would say behind Chris Paul, he might be the best floor general in the league right now you know not necessarily the best point guard like it's when you get into comparing him against somebody like Lillard uh it they're they're just such different players who do completely different things for their team but as far as somebody who uh puts everybody else on the team in position to succeed and just like kind of orchestrates an offense uh I I would put him behind Chris Paul as uh as the best game manager. And yeah. And not only that, like, you know, we talked about Chris Paul's durability and yeah, Lowry missed a bunch of games this year, but he was also third in the NBA in minutes per game somehow yeah. in his age 34 season. It kind of defies the the natural laws of athletic aging, both what Lowry and Chris Paul did this season. And you know me, like I've said for so long that I, I think these guys are, the way they play basketball is if they ever match up, it's that Spider-Man meme, like Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. They just, they move in a very similar way. 
They argue in a very similar <laughs> way. They are demanding of their teammates in a very similar way. Like they use their backsides in a very similar way to their advantage. They are bigger than their size would indicate they are, especially on the defense. Like just in every way, Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry are kind of the same players. And, you know, obviously I'll concede that Chris Paul is better than Kyle Lowry, but it's kind of stunning how similar they are. And it was really fun. You know, one of my favorite subplots of the season was the seasons that Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry both had because there were stretches of the year where they were the two best guards in the game. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and I, I think, you know, we came into the season thinking, and, and we didn't necessarily say the Raptors were going to trade Kyle Lowry, but when they gave him that one-year extension, we were like, well, you know, does this maybe make him more tradable? Uh, you know, if the Raptors get off to a slow start, will they look to move him? What could they hope to get in return? And for him to have kind of changed that narrative from, you know, maybe the Raptors are going to look to, to flip him for an asset uh, to him being the driving force behind one of the best teams in the league. Um, you know, a guy who looked like maybe as a scorer, at least, uh, was on the decline. And the Raptors really needed him to be more of a scorer this year with Kawhi gone. And he proved that he could still very much be that guy. Uh, like you said, having one of his best defensive season. I still think he's one of the absolute best help defenders in the league. Um, just like, just an unbelievable season and an unbelievable story. Uh, yeah, for both him and Chris Paul. Okay, so your your All-NBA guards are complete because you had Jimmy Butler as yes. one of them. Yeah. That is fascinating. Um, <laughs> so, so now it's all on me. Um, can I guess who you had? Sure. Was it Kemba? It was not. Interesting. Brad Beal. Man, so Westbrook? I, nope. Oh man. Uh, I'm having Booker? I'm having kind of buyer's record. No, it was Donovan Mitchell actually. Wow. Okay. And, he, I think he was like yeah. barely low on my list of tough cuts. Even man, listen, I, I'm not gonna lie that I I had a little bit of buyer's remorse as I was even making the argument to myself, and I, I think I'm being kind of unfair to Brad Beal, who I've been you know trumpeting that he's a great player despite his team's record all season, and then. Now I came to make these artificial all-NBA picks, and I didn't pick them. And, and then you look at Brad Beal's numbers, and the guy literally averaged 30 points a game and six assists while shooting 46, 35, 84. Like, Brad Beal's Beal season was unbelievable. Russell Westbrook's last two months were pretty unbelievable. I think if you take – and Kemba has, was awesome all year. In terms of Beal and Westbrook, I think if you take each of them at their best this season, they were better than Donovan Mitchell – I think Donovan Mitchell was the most consistent of all these guys. I know the Jazz weren't what we thought they'd be, but I really think that quietly in the midst of all that, Mitchell actually did take a bit of a step as a little more of an alpha player and a little more of a complete player. He averaged 24 points, four rebounds, four assists, pretty efficient. I thought I thought he improved as a defender, and it, it waned at times, but I did think he improved on that end of the court. And then, like, even you look at comparing Donovan Mitchell to Kemba Walker this year, Donovan Mitchell played almost 600 more minutes than Kemba Walker. And for me, that's what it came down to. It was between Mitchell, Westbrook, Walker, and Beal. And then I thought, from a consistency standpoint, I was going to go with Mitchell and Walker. And then it kind of blew me away how many more minutes Mitchell had played than Kemba this year. And I thought in a debate that was this close, that's what gave 
Mitchell the edge. And I think, you know, I, I could tell you were surprised by it. I think a lot of people would be surprised by it. But I also think that maybe not a lo- enough people um, noticed the step that Donovan Mitchell took this season, despite the fact that his team didn't take the leap they were expected to. And I just think that really was no fault of his own. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Like I, I, The Jazz being disappointing had nothing to do with Mitchell. I thought he was great. Um, and I, I'm not going to, like, I don't think it's totally outrageous to put him on the third team. Um, and you mentioned, like, the strides that he made as a defender. I think as, like, a three-level scorer, he improved. Like, his mid-range game and his floater game, uh, I think both improved a lot. And as a playmaker, he continues to kind of progress. And obviously, you know, with Conley being such a disappointment this season, a lot of that playmaking burden fell on Mitchell's shoulders when we kind of went into the season thinking that Conley being there was going to help ease that burden and allow him to play off of the ball more of the time and, uh, you know, allow him to thrive without necessarily commanding so much defensive attention because there were going to be more threats around him. But that didn't really happen. And in spite of that, he still had a great season. So I don't have any issue with it. Um, Again, I mean, I had Butler in this category. Uh, if it wasn't Butler, I think I was more choosing between um, between Kemba and Beal. But, uh, but I don't think it's outrageous to put Mitchell in that category. I do think he had a really good year. Yeah, and then like I said, I mean, look, if, if Russ had started the season playing the way he did these last two months, then I actually think he would have been a pretty unanimous choice to be somewhere on these three teams. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was transcendent for, for the last six weeks of the season. Yeah, he had a claim, and I think, you know, Trey Young, obviously, like, the defense is what prevents him from being included in this. Just an absolutely volcanic offensive season from him, but I just think it's hard to make him an all-NBA player when he's maybe the worst defensive player in the year, in the league, Yeah, and his team really suffers for it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... There are some players who I feel like are, are defensive liabilities, but they're defensive liabilities in a way that like they can kind of be covered for. And it's not Trey Young's fault that like the Hawks don't have the guys who can cover for him defensively. But I also think that he was the single biggest problem with their defense. And given the fact that that was the biggest problem with that team this year and why they were one of the worst teams in, in the league, I couldn't stomach including him uh, on an all-NBA team. It's interesting because I think... Even at his best, Isaiah Thomas, like young Isaiah Thomas, was probably the worst defensive player. Like the year Isaiah Thomas finished third in MVP voting, I think you could make the argument that individually he was still the worst defensive player in the league. Yeah. Um, but I think he was in a obviously on a way better team in a better system. But I don't necessarily know he was that much of a better offensive player at the time than Trey Young already is. And I think that's kind of interesting to think about projecting Trey forward. I think you can. I, I think people maybe forget how ridiculous that offensive season was. From Isaiah? Yeah. He was, I'll look it up right now, but he was basically at, like, I think he was at 34% usage. It was insane. It was one of the most fun and best offensive seasons in recent memory. Yeah, so um, 34% usage and 62.5% true shooting. Yeah, that's pretty absurd. Um, and on a per 36-minute basis, averaging 30.8 points. assists and only 2.9 turnovers. And I think, you know, you compare that to Trey Young for one thing. uh, He turns the ball over a ton. He turns the ball over a whole lot more. The ball's maybe in his hands a lot more than it was Isaiah Thomas's hands that year. Uh, And obviously Isaiah having way more talent around him certainly helped. 
Trey's kind of on an island there with Atlanta, but um, you know, if you just sort of compare their efficiency, like Trey Young's true shooting percentage this year was 59.5, which is great for, for the kind of usage that he was putting up and the degree of difficulty on a lot of the shots that he was taking, but uh, it wasn't quite on the level of Isaiah that season. Uh, and then you look at the turnover rate, um, which is almost twice as high. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that. I, it's probably a stretch to say that Trey is quite where Isaiah was um, that season. But I do think it's interesting to kind of project that forward and see that like you can you can even be that much of a defensive liability and still have an impact. And I think projecting Trey forward, the, the offensive talent is there. And the fact that he even is an honorable mention for you right now in this golden age of guards kind of speaks to how insane that offensive talent is. Yeah. And also, I mean, maybe I was, I wasn't being totally fair in that comparison because he's a way, way better passer than Isaiah Thomas ever was. So I think that has to be taken into account as well, but also like this field of guards is just so deep. um, And there were so many outstanding performances this season. Like, um, I don't know if you consider Ben Simmons a guard, but I do. Uh, but like, he, like just for what he did at the defensive end this season, I thought deserved yeah. to be in that mix. Uh, we mentioned Kemba, who was just like such a like a steadying influence on that Celtics team, and yeah. kind of was able to take over when he needed to, but also take a step back when he needed to, and defer to the other guys on that team. Um, and who, despite his small stature, I think worked really hard at the defensive end uh, to not be a liability. Beal didn't work so hard at the defensive end, but also just had like a, a really majestic offensive season. Um, Devin Booker had a fantastic offensive season. Like there were so many guys who I thought were deserving of recognition. And Dude, I think- just like, think about these, like Kyle Lowry, Kemba Walker, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Ben Simmons, Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, Devin Booker, Bradley Beal, Trey Young. If you want to include Jimmy Butler in the guards, that's 13. And no step. You could- and no Steph. So throw Steph in there. That's 14. And no Kyrie. Can, Jesus. So you're looking – if you include Kyrie, Steph, and Jimmy Butler among the guards, that's 15 players we just named off. That would mean you could have seven all-NBA teams, and one of those guys would still get left off. Like, think about how insane that is. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Maybe they should uh, expand to seven all-NBA teams. <laughs> All right. And no drive, drive for inclusivity. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's roll through these final three players here: two forwards and one center. Who are your third team forwards? All right, so I remember uh, a few weeks back we were having a conversation about how difficult it was going to be to pick these last two forwards. Yeah, and Pascal Siakam was the most difficult cut for me. Like he was the first guy, or like the last guy off, essentially that I had to mm-hmm. cut. Um, and so I end up, I ended up going with Tatum and Middleton as my third team forward. Did you have one ahead of the other? No, I mean, do I have to put one ahead of the other? Like, no, I, no, no. I just wasn't sure. I do think, did have one. yeah. So I guess I'll say, like, when it came down to it, I was choosing between Tatum and Siakam at the end. Yeah. Um, I, I just couldn't ignore the season that Middleton had. Being the second best player on a team that was on its way to high sixties wins with one of the best point differentials ever. Uh, while being literally one field goal away from going 50, 40, 90, while averaging over 20 a game, which, yeah. um, as you've pointed out, would have put him in a category with only Bird, Durant, and Steph, I believe. That's correct, yeah. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, he, I, I just couldn't ignore that. And also like the way that he was sort of able to carry that team when Giannis was off the floor, the fact that he had a plus 14 on court net rating. Um, I, I just thought he had to be here. Yeah. And even if you want to go by like the, the old school eyeball test, like he was a big shot maker this season too, you know, in a strictly like one-on-one setting or not in a one-on-one setting, but in a like if, if Middleton's your best player and a guy like Siakam's your best player, like where are you better off? I think the argument would skew to Siakam. Yeah. But uh, again, I do think if, if you just want to reward guys for what happened this season, which is, you know, the nature of all NBA awards, then I just think you cannot ignore the fact that Chris Middleton, you know, flirted with immortality from a shooting perspective while being a really great two-way player and by far the second best player on the team that was going to win 69 or 70 games. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just sort of what it came down to to me. And I, you know, maybe that's being unfair by including team context when really this should be about individuals. But um, I do think that it matters. And what Middleton meant to that team this year uh, matters a whole heck of a lot. And just given how good that team was and what a big part in he he played in that team being as good as it was. Uh, I had to give him the nod. All right. So I, I already had Butler um, and you said you had Tatum. I did. So you want to talk about Tatum since we already talked about Butler? Incredible season. Like, and ultimately again, like it sort of came down to choosing between him and Siakam and I gave him the slightest of edges just because ultimately I do think he was the best player on his team, uh, which was one of the best teams in the league. Um, the Raptors were three games ahead of them in the standings, but I think uh, you maybe saw a little bit of the distinction between them. Like when Kemba Walker was out, Tatum stepped in and took the reins and just went on an absolute heater. He turned himself into an elite three-point shooter. He was hitting, I think, 40% on seven attempts per game from deep. Um, averages 24, 7, and 3 with excellent defense both on and off the ball. And, and I think, yeah, that was sort of just what made the difference to me was like uh, when he was called upon to take over the team and to be their best player, I think he really thrived. And I think Siakam thrived in spots when he was asked to play that role, but I think he also struggled a bit more than Tatum did um, in that context. And I do think Siakam is a better defender but I think the gap is fairly negligible uh, to the point that what Tatum brings offensively, like his ability to create off of the dribble, um, just uh, nudged him ahead slightly. You know, the, the on-off numbers were also just overwhelming. Like the Celtics were plus 10.3 with him on and minus one with him off. Like uh, the advanced metrics kind of paint him as by far the biggest driver of that team's success this year. Like I said, I had Butler as a forward, so I had him in there, but I also have no argument if, you know, if Butler's not in that mix of having Tatum in there. I think, especially down the stretch, I guess you can say down the stretch of the season since it ended in mid-March, but he really, I thought, established himself and kind of separated himself from the rest of that pack. And it, and it emerged as Boston's probably best all-around player uh, with Kemba in or out of the lineup down the stretch. Yeah, I think without a doubt. Who was your All-NBA third-team center? Bam. Same? Yeah. Same. So we just, the only disagreement we had was I had Butler as a guard, you had him as a forward, and then you had Mitchell instead of Tatum, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Because, um, yeah, I didn't think there was a, like much argument for anybody other than Bam as a third-team center. I think no, Gobert, I mean, Gobert and Sabonis are maybe the yeah. only two guys that you could make an argument for. Those are the three it came down to for me, but I, I thought Bam 
separated himself from those guys. And and honestly, I, as great as Rudy remains defensively, I was actually for me it came down to Bam and Sabonis just because I I just think Rudy maybe saying he was a shell of himself this season is way too unfair, but I just don't think he was at his best this season and. I don't think he ever looked right either. And look, when we had um, when we had Eric Walden on the pod, uh, if you remember, a month or two ago, and he talked about how it was kind of like an unkept secret there that uh, Rudy Gobert wasn't happy with his offensive role and was kind of sulking about it, and it was affecting his defense. So, you know, I, I, those things matter when you're talking about yearly awards. And I actually had it come down to Bam and Sabonis for me because of that. And and I think Bam, I think Bam is the better all around player, as good as Sabonis is. What do you think, like, what does Gobert want his offensive role to be? That's what I don't really understand. I don't know, like, he's like, he not wants good enough offensively. Or... But, but even that, I think that's ridiculous. Like, I don't think... You I'm not saying it's the... not ridiculous. I'm just, like, curious, you know, specifically, yeah. like, what is he I don't know. I would about? imagine. I would imagine he just wants the ball more. But I, I just, I don't understand that because um, while well, everyone wants the ball more. And I get that you can just look at his field goal percentage and be like, look how insane his field goal percentage is. Like, it's true shooting 70%. You should give him – it's yeah, it's because all he's doing is dunks and putbacks. Like, if you actually put the ball in his hands more and took it out of, say, Donovan Mitchell's hands or even Mike Conley's hands – I know he's struggling – or Bogdanovich's hands. If, if those offensive possessions are going through Gobert instead, you're going to be a less efficient team because he doesn't have much to offer in terms of individual offense. He's not a great playmaker. Um, I, I just don't understand why the Jazz ever would put the ball in his hand more, and I don't think they will unless he develops on that end of the floor. Yeah, like maybe you could say he wants them to just draw more plays for him in general, um, You know, even if that just involves him catching the ball on the roll or going up for lobs. But a lot of teams, they'll just sort of sit back to defend against that lob and kind of load up uh, on Gobert when he's diving to the rim and, and force the Jazz guards to beat them instead. And I don't know what really the Jazz can do to counter that. Like, they still use Gobert in the pick and roll a ton. He led the league in screen yeah. assists. They're putting him in position to get all those screen assists. How can you not be happy? Putting up <laughs> triple doubles left and right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I thought, uh, look, Gobert's great. Um, but I kind of agree with you that there's just something about him that leaves you wanting, I think. Yeah. A lot of the time, and, and maybe it does just come down to the fact that like he hasn't refined his offensive skills to the point that he can be anything more than a dependent scorer. And that doesn't mean like his defense matters any less. Like he is an absolutely ferocious defensive player who every season, you know, gives the Jazz basically a floor of being like a top ten defensive team. Um, but I feel like maybe he wasn't quite as good at that end uh, as he's been yeah. in the past, and. And so, yeah, that was, I think Bam was better. Uh, I mean, like, it's not it's not a knock on anybody else, on, on Gobert or Sabonis, if Bam gets in here. I just, like, he had a fantastic season uh, at both ends of the floor. And, and as I mentioned, while, while at the end of the day, you know Jimmy Butler is the guy you want with the ball in his hands, on the heat, um, when push comes to shove, Taking everything into context, I, I do think that there were large stretches of the season where Bam was Miami's best player, their most versatile player, their most matchup-proof player, and kind of what made them go. Yeah, they were really just 1A and 1B, I think, in setting the tone exactly. for the, the resurgent heat. Yeah. Um, and Bam was arguably just as important, especially like what he gave them defensively. Um, 
you know, whether it's anchoring the back line or switching out on the perimeter, uh, guarding every type of player you can imagine. And then offensively, like playing point center a lot of the time, leading the break or just playmaking from the high post, averaging 16, 10, and 5 uh, over a steal and over a block. Um, he he kind of just did everything that they asked of him. And um, I think, like you said, he was – I think he was Butler's equal in a lot of ways, uh, even if he wasn't that guy who was sort of handling the ball late in games. Um or, uh, you know, being being the team sort of like lead ball handler and, and tempo setter. Uh, I think so much of what they did revolved around him. There you have it. Our 15 All-NBA players. We touched on some uh, close calls. And honestly, the, the NBA is just stocked with star talent, man. And this is in a year when Kevin Durant and Steph Curry were out. and Kyrie Irving, as is usually the case, missed a bunch of time. The amount of star talent is insane. And if... If everyone was healthy and you had to try to pick 15 players, like it would be absolutely maddening. It was already almost maddening enough, but yeah. Yeah, no Durant, no Clay, no Steph, no Kyrie. Yeah, each of those guys at their best, that's practically an all-NBA first team. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, the league's in a great spot with star talent now. We just need the world and uh, the NBA to follow to be in a great spot overall. Yeah, let's hope. All right. Thanks, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks uh, to everyone who's still checking out the app and uh, following all our social media channels and consuming all of the score content during this very weird time without sports. With that, I'll just say thanks for listening. And for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.